today, as you find your way back to your seats, we are going to be continuing on with the journey around evangelism that we have been doing as a church, um, which if you're visiting for the first time, I know that can be a bit intense, like, hi, welcome to a new church. Let's talk about how to share your faith. But um, the reason we're doing it is because we genuinely believe and we want to listen to Jesus' call. Um, at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus gives this commission to everyone who wants to follow in his name saying, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. And so there's this core element of what it means to follow Jesus, central to wanting to follow his ways and be one of his disciples. Core to that is learning how to share who he is and his teachings and his way of life with others. And throughout 2,000 years, the church has been working at sharing our faith with people from different spaces and different times. And so the reason we're doing this series is we're looking at Alpha coming up in a couple of weeks, and I wanted us to wrestle with how do we as a church share our faith in ways that feel um, honest, that don't feel like we're duping anyone or doing anything wrong or doing any harm, but also feel like they work for us in a language that people understand. And so the first week we talked about wanting to have a confidence in the gospel. It can be really easy in the West, particularly where church numbers are dropping. Oh, I can feel that scratching on my face. It can be easy in the West where church numbers are dropping to lose confidence in the gospel of Jesus. We think it's too hard or people aren't engaged or no one wants to hear about it anymore. And so that first week, I just wanted to inspire us, reminding us that the core of evangelism, the core of sharing our faith, of witnessing, their responsibility actually lies in the actions of God. Paul said this, I have complete confidence in the gospel because it is God's power to save all who believe, first the Jews and then also the Gentiles. For the gospel reveals how God puts people right with himself. It is through faith from beginning and end, as the scripture says, the person, who, the person who is put right with God through faith shall live. And so there's this confidence that we can have, not because we're going to be great evangelists. We may all not be Billy Graham. We all may not have the best words or the answers, but we have faith because we know God is at work. And we know God is at work in our world because that's just who he is. And many of us are here today because we met God and he worked in our lives. And so the basis of faith and evangelism is actually starting with God is at work in our world. In our job in the community, we can have confidence because what we're trying to do is just point out what God is doing and say, hey, look, we bear witness to God there. And then last week we talked about the context that we live in. Context is king. If you try and use the wrong word in the wrong language, it means nothing to people. And in our, uh, particularly here in New Zealand, amongst the majority culture, um, we live in what's called a very secular state and a very secular country. And so last week, with fear and trembling, I walked us through um, the understanding of secularism through the philosopher of Charles Taylor. And he talks about secular as like these three different stages. Secular one is when secular is more about like holy things and impure things, and everyone is living in that space, and you're worried about demons coming and infecting your family, so you go to church so that God's blood can wash you clean. And then you have secular two, which is where it's like the religious space and the non-religious space are fighting, and we're competing, and we're trying to see which one wins in this battle. But Charles Taylor says that now, countries like ours have moved in what he calls secular three, 
which is to say that even the idea of a transcendent God breaking into the people's world, for a lot of people, just seems unbelievable nowadays. It's a product of our brain chemistry. It's just a cultural structure that's been put upon you. But a risen, resurrected Jesus coming and invading our world, it's hard to believe nowadays. And so Charles Taylor talked about how all beliefs are fragile in that space. And we talked about how do we share our faith in that space? Well, maybe it's less about trying to convince people of things or win that battle between like the religious space and the non-religious space. And we looked at Paul's language in Corinthians when he went to share the gospel with them. He said, I came, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. And we talked about how there's something in today's secular age that I think we will be more efficient if we lead with weakness, with vulnerability, and with honesty as we share our faith with people. We don't try to win them in this battle over to belief, but we invite them into an experience with Christ on the cross. And as they experience his love through our honesty and through our humility and our vulnerability, they're drawn into this transcendent moment that they didn't even expect. And there God can be at work with people. So that's kind of where we've been. And so today we're going to kind of continue that conversation, particularly around our cultural world and our cultural moment a little bit more and how do we do that. So let me pray and then we'll jump into it. Um, Jesus, we believe that you are at work in our world. I believe that you are at work in people's lives. Whether they are a part of church or whether they have never been to church at all, Jesus, I know you are reaching out to them. I know how much you love them. You care for them. You long to see them brought into your family. You want to see them have life and life abundantly. God, as we look at your scriptures and our world today, I pray that your spirit might speak to us. Encourage us to follow your way and to see your kingdom come in our communities. In your name I pray, amen. Amen. So there's this famous um, theologian from the UK who often travels around and he does speaking conferences and he, he talks about faith and theology. He talks about how to share your faith with people. And there's this one story I've heard him tell a few times on different YouTube channels. And it's the story of how he, when he went to this one place in the UK, he came across this young bodybuilder bro, right? Like just jacked, right? And as he was talking with him, he, the bodybuilder asked what he did. And he's like, oh, I'm a professor of theology. I talk about faith. And this young guy to this theologian's surprise, was like, oh, you're a theologian. Man, I love Jesus. And this guy was like, whoa. Like, in today's society, most young people tend to move away from church. And here was this young person who loved Jesus. And so this theologian got all excited, and he was like, really, tell me about him. And so they had this long conversation where they found this young bodybuilder's faith was super genuine, and it was super full. He really loved Jesus. He, he was studying and he was reading scripture and he was like really sold out about it. And so this, um, this theologian was like, my goodness, in today's society, where do people like you come from? And so he asked this young bodybuilder, like, what church are you a part of? Like, what community has formed you this way to have such a strong faith? And the young bodybuilder says, church? Oh man, I can't stand church. No way, I wouldn't go to church. And the theologian's like, what? 
why? And he's like, oh, it just, it just doesn't work for me. So the theologian was a bit confused. So he begins to talk to him more about Jesus and faith and begins to ask him how much Jesus really means to him. And so eventually the theologian gets up to him and says, but how much do you really care about Jesus? Like, do you think you would die for him? Do you think you would die for Jesus? And this young bodybuilder takes a moment and he thinks about it. And he's very, very sincere, very genuine. He goes, yeah, let me think about it. And he thinks and he pauses. And then with a very somber face, he says, you know what, yeah, I really, really believe in Jesus. And I really, I think I would die for him. If it came down to it, and people asked me whether I'd repent or not or turn away, I think I'd die for Jesus. And then the theologian again asks, really, no church? He's like, no, I can't stand church. And he's like, why? He's like, honestly, it's just super boring. Super boring. So whenever the theologian tell this, tells this story, he's usually in a Christian context like this one, and he says to them, he says, now isn't that ironic? He says, this young man was willing to die for Jesus, but not be bored for him. <laughs> right? right? And I, every time, I've seen this on multiple YouTube videos, whenever he says it, the room that's just usually full of pastors goes nuts. They're like, oh yeah, slam. They want to like drop mics. People are like going crazy. They're throwing their books in the air being like, yeah, you got them. You showed it. And it's this feeling of like, yeah, can you believe how like selfish and shallow people's faith is nowadays? You know, they're willing to die for Jesus, but they won't really be willing to be bored for him. And what's fascinating about that story is on the one sense, you could leave it there and be like, well, that's just how it is. Young people today are fickle and they don't care about doing the hard things. They just want to be there for the exciting things. But I think that actually only scratches the surface of a cultural mindset and a cultural attitude that actually goes much, much deeper. And I think it taps into another gospel or another vision of the good life that exists in our world that many of us hold on to really tightly. And so today what I wanna to talk about is the gospel of authenticity, right? So the gospel uh, is a Greek word, evangelion, and that mostly means good news. So it's a message of good news about a new way of life, about a new way of being. And often throughout history, there have been many gospels Many different types of good news. There was the gospel of Caesar, the new, Romer, the new Roman emperor coming to bring Roman enlightenment. There was the gospel of the Byzantine empire. There was the gospel of these people. And there's the gospel of Jesus, which we would talk about as death and resurrection. But today, there are still gospels that we hold on to, even if they don't have that language. In our world, there are visions of the good life that many in our culture ascribe to and hold on to really, really deeply. And this is particularly true of majority culture in New Zealand. It would be slightly different amongst Māori and Pacifica because those cultures are different, but particularly amongst the majority culture, one of the greatest gospels, the greatest hopes for life, is for each and every one of us to live with a sense of authenticity. We want to be authentic. We want to be real. We want to be fulfilled. We want to be our true selves. Um, Carl Sedestrom, a, a sociologist, he describes this kind of gospel of authenticity this way. He says, according to modern society, there is only one way to become happy, and that's by reaching your full potential as a human being. It's to live in a spirit of authenticity where you're called upon to live your life as opposed to someone else's life. It is to pursue happiness in the form of pleasure, whereby the most boring, rudimentary daily activities become moments of potential joy. 
Do you recognize that? This week when I was doing research for it, if you go into like business books, leadership books, or self-help books, there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands all dedicated to helping you become authentic. If you look around in our world, honestly, it'll be like a trigger word for you. This week, look around and see how many times you hear the word authentic described as the best thing, the real thing. Now, we didn't always have this value so much. Um, previous generations would actually have not have been in that space. Charles Taylor, again, we're using his, his discussion because it's really helpful. He says that we've moved really as a society from a society of duty, where duty was the highest value. Duty, <laughs> sorry, still 30. <laughs> it's gonna happen. We moved from a society where we value duty and loyalty to one where we value authenticity. I mean, if you think back to your grandparents or your great-grandparents, um, them living self-fulfilled, authentic lives didn't feature at all in their value set or value systems. It didn't feature in the propaganda or the advertising things. Instead, when you looked at advertising maybe 100 years ago, instead you see advertisements like this. So these are for the wars. The first one says, your king and country need you to maintain the honor and the glory of the British Empire. Oh, your duty. It's your duty as a Kiwi to go and serve the motherland, to honor the empire. The other one is, says, the empire needs men. It may probably be fortunate for you ladies. The empire needs men. Australia, Canada, India, New Zealand, all answer the call. Helped by the young lions, the old lion defies his foes. Enlist now. Fascinating, eh? Can you imagine anyone running an advertisement like that and it working at all these days? Not a chance. Can you imagine, like nowadays, we don't want to do anything for another country, much less, could you imagine a whole bunch of our young people going and dying for the motherland nowadays? We call them palms, like we're not gonna go back and do that, right? And it's because what happened is we've shifted massively as a society. Remember, if we're thinking about secular too, it was all about, did you belong to this group or this group? Were you religious or a-religious? And the way that you showed your value was by wholeheartedly belonging to a community and showing your loyalty and your fealty to that. And that's the way it worked. But what happens is you get a transition around the 1960s. Those of you who are baby boomers here, you brought about part of this transition your generation did, where in the 1960s you shift from duty, being one of the highest values of society, to authenticity, following your dreams, your passions, and your desires as one of the highest goods. And that's because we've had that change in secularism. Andrew Root, who's a really good theologian, he says this, because transcendence was an unreality, so the idea that God would come in and make changes, that's not realistic anymore. Established structures were, see, uh, were seen as only the society seeking to culturally repress individual desires or individual freedom. The world was lost in transcendence, making any authority that existed outside the desires of the self inauthentic and therefore meaningless. Which is a really fancy way of saying in the 1960s, you get a way of thinking, kind of sparred by Freud and other key thinkers, that your desires, your truest inner deeper desires are the truest part of you. And anything that any other society puts upon you is just repressive. So thinking back to the 1960s, it's like putting on a suit and tie to go work for the man, right? Ah, oh, I can't do that. I don't wanna spend my life just 
clocking out the thing, working for someone else's thing. That's not me. That's not who I am. And so you get this hippie movement where everybody wears like nice fancy jeans and big hair and free sex and free loves and drugs and rock and roll. Those were all pathways to discovering the authentic life. Because if society was morally tight, then by engaging in, in sexual relationships anywhere you wanted with anyone, you're casting off society's desires and you're living your authentic truth. Um, psychedelics, so LSD mushrooms, became the gateway to enlightenment in the 1960s, didn't they? Do you remember that? Like, it was this idea that all of society's um, structures and thinking have blocked you into a mold, and that mold is not the real you. That's an inauthentic you. And as long as you live out of those desires, you are being inauthentic. So lots of people, and it's come back today if you read the literature, lots of people explored psychedelics and psychotropics like LSD and mushrooms in order to free their minds and discover their true, authentic selves. And you get this transition where now authenticity, casting off any burden or structure on your shoulders and following your desires becomes the highest good. And do you wanna know where we see it most clearly? In the gospel of Disney. <laughs> the great gospel of Disney. Honestly, I mean, I've just picked out a couple, but if you follow any of the major Disney films for the last 10 years, they shifted from like the 1960s, 1980s, it was still about relationships and finding one true love. Nowadays, it's about casting off any burdens that are put upon you by someone else to discover your true self and follow your dreams. So Moana, chieftain's daughter, but the chief, her father, wants to keep her locked in on the island. She must be the chief every, the way every other chief has been throughout all of history, and you must identify with those same things because that's what we do. And the turning point in Moana's story, if you know it, is right near the end, she understands her true self. She's actually a sailor. That's who she really is. And so in a climactic song moment, she shouts, I am Moana. <laughs> Boom. And then that's it. She goes and defeats Tefiti in Maui, puts the thing back in the heart, and everything is fixed because she discovered her true, authentic self. Or the other one was Elsa, Frozen. How many of you guys have kids that you're still stuck listening to those songs all the time? I mean, there you go. I hear it. I see it. I fortunately have missed out on it. My kids don't know it yet, and I'm trying not to show it to them. Don't tell them. I'm serious. Don't tell them. If you want me to continue being your pastor and be sane, do not introduce them to the soundtrack of Frozen, okay? <laughs> so Elsa, right? What's her story? She's a young princess who's been given these magical powers. She's able to control ice and do things, but what is the advice she's given? Conceal, don't feel, don't let them know, hide it in, repress your desires, that's, that's the way you're gonna fit. And then the climactic moment of the song and the movie is when she goes in, let it go, let it go, can't hold it back anymore. Like she goes through the whole thing, right? <laughs> that perfect girl is gone. I don't know why I'm doing it in falsetto <laughs> other than to identify with her somehow. Um, but the climactic moment is when she casts off the burden society puts upon her and she no longer represses her inner true authentic self and she lives in her true self saying, no, I'm not gonna go back and be that thing that you want me to be. And when her and her sister find their authentic selves and her sister is no longer trying to find herself in a relationship, when Anna finds herself in love, that's when the song is finished and everything's better. I could go through countless movies, countless places where you can see again and again and again the role that following your true passions 
your true heart, your true desires. That's what everybody wants these days. Do you see that? Have you heard that? I'm just trying to give language to something that's in the air that you can now begin to talk about. And you find it in lots of places. Business advice, you need to find a job that you love that personally fulfills you, that is doing your unique gifts and talents. And if you do that, then you'll be happy. And if you're stuck working a garbage job, you're stuffed. Unless for some reason you like doing that, in which case, God bless you. But a lot of us in the West, we all dream when we work with our children to find their gifts and their passions that they can do a job that they love and never work a day in their life, right? But we know it's not true. Like we know half of our society and our cities run on jobs that not many people like doing. There's a whole bunch of infrastructure jobs that we all have to deal with, but that doesn't fit into our gospel. The gospel of authenticity, those who really make it are those who are able to live their lives. You also see it in church. The way we describe your role in church has shifted massively. Go back 50, 60 years, everyone is serving. You're serving in a role. Oh, this is our person you're serving on the music team. Uh, you're serving on the host team. You're serving in this team. Nowadays, it's all the language of volunteers. And the language that we often use, and I have used it as well, is, okay, you want to find your place at church? Look, let's find out about who you are. What are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? What do you really love? What kind of things are you really passionate about? And um, let's get you locked into one of those roles. So that you're volunteering in the thing that you love most and it's really fulfilling, and then that'll be great. You hear that language that we do it there as well? Now that's not bad. I'm not saying everyone should do terrible jobs, but also somebody has to do some jobs that nobody likes doing. But that doesn't fit into our values. So authenticity is not just bad or it's good. It just is what it is. There's some really helpful things that it has brought to our society, one of which is the end of nominal Christianity, which I think is actually pretty lovely. In the 1940s and the 1950s, everybody was Christian because you had a duty to be Christian. That was your job to be Christian. Did the living Jesus transform your life and your family's life? Lord, no. But you went to church on Easter and Sunday, didn't you? Because that's what you were meant to do. So authenticity has helped us a lot because now those who are here is because we want to experience the risen Jesus and we want to encounter him. But it also presents some real challenges when we think about faith and when we think about passing on faith, sharing faith with other people. And I particularly think it's problematic when we think about how we share our faith with our young people. I think they struggle with this more than anyone else. Our culture idolizes youth to gain authenticity. There's an idea that in our society, the youth are the most authentic people because they're younger, they haven't been monopolized by society's norms, and they can live in their true authentic selves. And so everybody wants to have the youth on their side, don't they? I mean, think about it. If you're a company and you're marketing, if it's really about just dollars and bottom line, you should be marketing to 40 to 70, right? Because they're the ones with more income than anyone else. They're the ones who are doing investment properties. If Coca-Cola really wants to boost their bottom line and get people to buy Coke, well then let's um, market to the 40, 60 year olds to buy it for their kids and everything. But that's not who they market to. If you're a clothing company, you don't market to the 40 to 65 year olds. If you're a design company, you don't market to the 40 to 65 year olds. Who do you market to? 18 to 20. Actually 15 to 25 now. It's probably more realistic. Because if your company has buy-in from 15 to 25, then your company now has authenticity given to you by youth, and you've got that extra factor of cool. And cool 
Well, that has huge financial incentives in a culture that values authenticity above all else. And so churches have struggled with this. We want to engage our young people, right? We want them to know Jesus and follow Jesus. But the problem is we often get caught into the same trap of wanting to lead with authenticity and cool to get them to come be a part of it. So uh, kids aren't coming to churches, isn't working. What's the next coolest thing we can do? Let's get 30 lasers. And uh, I'm going to make a kid drink a Coke through a sock. That'll do it. And then we're going to do this crazy thing. And I'm going to jump in from a flying horse over the air. Because if we can do something that's authentic and hip, then our kids might actually stay engaged in faith. And then our church, for really honest, might be viewed as healthy. Because we have the 18 to 25 demographic. And we're training our young people to equate authenticity with faith. Andrew Wright says, the church likewise seems to, think, uh, seem, seems to seek the youthful because what we've lost is so, not so much numbers and dollars. Worse, we've lost what in our time is more valuable than gold, authenticity. Youthfulness. It's odd that a church built in the suburbs in 1998 that looks more like a movie theater could be considered more authentic than a 200-year-old Gothic building in a city. But because authenticity is bound to youthfulness, it is so. Put another way, if you think about how is the gospel of authenticity influencing your world, how is it that a church maybe like ours that maybe has some more young people, a curate that has lots of young people, often is seen as the more hip relevant, real, authentic church versus a church like Tauranga Central Baptist, which is an old building, been there for over 100 years, and filled predominantly with people who have been Christians their entire lives, who have faithfully prayed, given, sacrificed, fasted, loved, and served for 70, 80 years. Yet somehow us, two years old, maybe we're seen as more authentic to faith than them? Do you get that? Do you get the dangers of how, how easily it is for us when we're thinking about sharing faith? It can be so easy that when we talk about Jesus with people, we say, look, you got to meet Jesus. Look, are you struggling in life? Look, here's this great thing God's going to give you. Oh, hi, Becky. She can, does she have anything to add in? She's being authentic. Live your desires, Becky. You do it. Um, that was amazing. It wasn't one of my kids. That's kind of nice. Um, the danger is we begin to pre present the gospel in ways that are all about fulfilling your desires. God wants to make you the most authentic you you can be. And if we are a faith that is hip and cool and authentic, then maybe we'll convince people to stay long enough. But the challenge is that is not necessarily the gospel of Jesus. How do we talk about faith and the gospel of Jesus in our world? I want us to look in the book of Matthew, chapter 16. If you have your Bibles, would you turn there with me? And we're going to look at one of Peter's encounters with Jesus, where Jesus answers questions of identity and then utterly flips it on its head. In Matthew 16, you have this encounter where um, it's halfway through the book. Jesus has been doing a whole bunch of miracles and been doing all these amazing things. And then it comes to this key moment when Jesus gathers with his disciples, it serves as the halfway point of the book. In uh, chapter 16, verse 13, 
It says this, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do you people say the son of man is? And they replied, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, Jesus asked? Who do you say I am? And then Peter, Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, son of the living God. This amazing confession of faith, stating the identity and the reality of Jesus, God incarnate right before him. And so Jesus replies to him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I'll give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Did you catch that? Jesus gives him a new name in this moment. Jesus gives him a new identity. For ages, he's known as Simon. And here he says, starts with Simon and then says, but I now tell you that you are Peter. And he gives him a new identity. He puts an identity onto him. And Peter means kephos or like rock. And then Jesus says, you are like a rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. And in a world of authenticity and where you're seeking your innermost desires from, when we're constantly looking inward, you have this moment where identity comes from outside as God places an identity onto us and calls out who we are. Now, what's funny is that in this encounter, it probably went to Peter's head a little bit. He got probably a little bit chuffed, like, oh yeah, I'm the man. That's who I am. I'm going to be, I'm the rock. I know what I'm doing. I'm going to move forward with this. I'm going to live out my identity. I'm going to follow my desires. I'm going to speak my truth at all times. Look what happens in the very, very next story. In verse um, 21, it says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and said, and began to rebuke him saying, never, Lord, this should never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And then Jesus said to his disciples, and listen to this in the age of authenticity. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. Take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Poignant words in an age of authenticity. Countercultural words in an age of authenticity. And you can imagine Peter wanting to live out his authentic identity here, being like, no, I know how this works. I know how this is going to be. Jesus, don't bother with all that stuff. Suffering, dying, that is outside. No, 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 no. I'm the rock. We'll put this forward strong. And instead, Jesus then radically turns the tables on him and says, no, you have this name, rock. The way you live it out, 
the way you understand what, to live, what it is to live in my gospel, in my kingdom, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is if you want to live your life, you must first lose it. If you want to follow me, you must first deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. Now, I get that in today's society, if we're talking about evangelism, this can be one of the most difficult ideas to get across. But it also, in its difficulty, represents one of our greatest potential moments where God can break in. Because the great challenge with authenticity is that if you try to hold on to it at its core, you are the one who's utterly responsible for making you happy at all times. And if you are not happy, that is 100% your fault because you're not living into your desires and your truth. And if your actions are causing you difficulty or breaking down your relationships, that's because the people around you are toxic and you need to follow your passions even more deeply and even more truly. Follow your desires more and more and more and then you might find happiness. The challenge with that is that friends, if you're following that, you are your own savior. Your life is utterly in your hands. Your happiness and your fulfillment and your identity is utterly in your hands. Instead, Jesus presents a different way. There is a way to be authentic, a way to be true, and a way to be yourself, but it is not found through following your desires all the way. It's found through the cross. It's found through repentance. Through saying, God, I've screwed this up. I followed these desires and they led me down a dark, dark path. And I'm now in many ways addicted to my own desires. I'm a slave to my own passions and whims and I, the things I want to do, I do not do, but the things I don't want to do, those I keep on doing. To you and to this society, Jesus says there is another way. Pick up your cross and follow me. Repent. Lay down your life and you will find it. Lose yourself in the cross and my kingdom and I will give you an identity that you can build on that is sure and strong. An identity that is bound in Christ and who he is. If I can invite the team back up, we're gonna close here. Alan Nobles talks about sharing our faith in today's context. He says, to bear witness to our faith we need to be attuned to how our neighbors conceive of the meaning of meaning and justification. What visions of fullness move them and where they have found particular visions wanting. The desire to live a life of meaning and to have our being in the world justified is natural and good, but our goal, church, is not to offer them just another vision of fullness to add to their options. We need to be a disruptive witness that denies the entire contemporary project of teaching faith as a preference. Church, if we want to have authenticity in sharing our faith with others, let us rediscover Christ in service. Let us rediscover faith in repentance through things that aren't sexy, but let us put on the cross. Rather than tearing down every identity and every belief, Jesus says, come, take my yoke upon you. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So I guess my question as we finish here, it's probably two things. One, how much do you think you still love and believe in the gospel of authenticity? Because I still struggle with it. 
when things don't go my way, when things don't follow in the path that I want, I immediately get angry at God saying, this isn't what you wanted for my life. This is supposed to be good and better. This isn't the fulfillment that I asked for. Part of this job, part of being in this marriage and this family, this is way harder than I expected it to be. This is difficult. This feels like I'm dying sometimes. Man, the gospel of authenticity should tell me to cast that off, run away from it and find my authentic desires. Jesus instead invites me deeper into that pain and says, come, let's put on the cross. Let's walk into those difficulties a little bit more and watch on the other side of those deaths, I will bring resurrection. How much do you still long to hold your own happiness and fulfillment in your own hands? Jesus would call you to give that up, to follow the cross and discover a whole different way of life, utterly countercultural to Disney, but so much better. And secondly, when we think about talking with our young people and sharing faith with others, how, church, can we model a faith that disrupts the narrative of authenticity in our community? How can we share our faith in ways that look like service, self-sacrificial love, giving without expecting return, doing things that are hard, not because it benefits you, but because you know it'll bless someone else. If we care about evangelism, church, let's witness to a different way of life. Not a Jesus who fulfills your identity, but a God that makes everything new. Where do you fit on one of those two things? Let me pray and the team's gonna lead us through one song as a response to that.